This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. So good morning, everyone. I hope you enjoyed a wonderful spring break. Whether or not you were able to get away, it looks like spring is finally here. Um, The temperatures aren't here yet, but the sun is out, so we're happy about that. I know I am. And I hope you had a refreshing week off to really soak in this week's message. So we're going to pop back into the lesson. We were talking about, in 2 Corinthians, we were in chapter 9, and we were in the middle of a conversation about generosity. So Lindsay talked about that. Sorry, I'm just trying to make sure this is not going to cut out. I know I have a soft voice, so... So we're in the middle of a conversation about the fact that Paul is talking to the Corinthians about a gift of money that they are um, planning to make towards the Jews in Jerusalem who are going through some really hard times. Um, And he had been kind of talking about also a situation. There were another group of people in Macedonia who were a lot less well-off than the Corinthians, and um, they had been overflowing with generosity, even in their poverty, because of what God had done for them. And so Paul is now kind of following up with the Corinthians about what they were planning on doing. And we're going to read this passage first, and then we'll kind of dive in. But first, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the gift of your word. I thank you for um, this last two weeks and for the study and I pray that um, as we dive into your word today, God, that your, your word would be alive to us, that it would speak to us, that it would have real application for us in our lives. Open up our hearts, our minds, our ears um, to what you have to say to us. Amen. So in chapter 9, <clears throat> Paul says, Now it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about, you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has already been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready. As I said, you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come to me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And maybe I'll kind of stop right there and we'll go on later on. Um, So the situation here, just to recap, is a year ago the Corinthians had responded eagerly and Paul enthusiastically bragged them up to others. And today Paul wants to be certain that their good intentions will bear fruit, proving them to be constant and steadfast in their love, that their intentions actually are going to be backed up with actions. I think Paul recognizes that it's really easy to feel an initial emotionally charged rush of good intentions when you're confronted with someone else in need. But the process of bearing fruit of following through, is usually slow and steady. It requires patience and discipline. So Paul wants them to be ready. 
And as I was starting to study this, the thing that really popped out at me was the fact that he emphasizes not just the action, that I want the money to be ready to go. That's, I mean, he kind of does hint at that. But really what he's saying is he wants their attitude to be ready. He wants a readiness of heart as well as of hands. Um, and as this goes on, that becomes more and more fleshed out. He talks less and less about the gift itself or how much they're giving or all that. And he talks more about their attitude, about them being cheerful givers, about not it being, as he says at the end, so that it's a willing gift, so that it's not an exaction. And something that I was thinking about was I was asked the question of myself, clearly, if, if the amount of the gift is not quite what God is, is looking for, right? Um, but it does require discipline to be able to um, make sure that you follow through with that. When we're thinking about our attitudes in giving, we know that our attitude, that the heart of giving is just as important as the gift itself. And while we talk about discipline in the giving, in the making sure that we budget for things and all of that, I wonder if we ever give thought to making sure that we protect our attitudes, that we protect the heart of giving, to make sure that when we're giving it, we're doing it in the right spirit. So that's something that's going to be kind of a thread throughout this message. That that's the introduction here. Um, and I want you to, to keep going back to that in your minds. I'm going to continue on with the passage here. Paul, the first part of it is very personal between him and the Corinthians. But as he goes on, he's going to be opening it up to be talking about um, sort of the wisdom and, and the encouragement in a, in a more general sense that definitely applies to all of us today. The point is this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So as we look at Paul's words of encouragement and wisdom for the Corinthians about giving, he first off says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Those of you probably recognize this sounds a little familiar. There are many, many times in the Bible where um, this metaphor of sowing and reaping comes up. And what Paul is doing is he's actually taking sort of an old chestnut, and he's putting a new spin on it. Um, I took the trouble of looking up what the different passages that, that have sowing and reaping in them in the Bible 
And I kind of wanted to share some of them with you today. So Job 4, 8 says, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Proverbs 22, 8 says, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Hosea 8, 7 says, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. And then later on in 10, uh, verse 12, Hosea says, sow for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that he may um, come and rain righteousness upon you. And then in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he shall also reap. So right there, you notice that even though it's pretty easy to go and assume that, okay, he's talking about sowing, he's talking about giving, so he's talking about what you're sowing. You're sowing, I don't know, your talents or your time or your money, right? And in these cases, the picture is a lot more broad. In it, God is um, talking about the difference between righteousness or iniquity, goodness or bad. And later on, Paul, you know, in other letters, he talks about sort of sowing to the flesh versus sowing towards heavenly things, towards heavenly treasures. So this is definitely not a sort of um, prosperity gospel kind of message of saying that the more you give, the more you're going to get back in that sense. Like write a check for this ministry and then God's going to give you a raise at work. That's not what Paul is saying. The kind of harvest that he's talking about, um, he's talking about the intentional things we do that can result in reward, punishment, righteousness, wickedness. Um, But instead, the harvest that's coming, he says specifically, is harvest of righteousness. So think about that a little bit. Um, Paul wants to remind them that you do have a choice in what you sow. But he also goes on to say you have a choice in how much you sow. I think it's important to realize that the idea, even the idea of sowing in real life, often feels like you're taking a piece of perfectly good food and you're putting it in the ground and you're covering it up and you're walking it away from it. Sometimes giving feels like like a waste. Um, There's an element of risk in it. But Paul is wanting to remind them that God rewards sowing into the right things. He rewards those things. And when you think about how God designed the world, God could have planned a world where if you want to grow wheat, you take one kernel of ground in and, or one kernel of wheat into the ground and, and a, a piece of grass comes up with two kernels of wheat. And that would have still been like, wow, I got, you know, kind of, I got something else out of it. But he doesn't. God has a world where when you put a kernel of corn into the ground, you don't just get two kernels of corn. You get like four ears of corn. And every single one of those ears of corn has, you know, a couple hundred kernels on it. That is the kind of God who we serve. So, um, and later on, I want you to keep that in mind because we, this whole lesson gives us a fabulous opportunity to start to think about who is God? What is he like? Um, and you'll see why later on. Something that, that also kind of, as an application for this, um, recently my family has been starting to play the game of life with my two sons. And just last night, says I'm sitting here kind of working on this, and my husband is playing with James and Caleb, 
And Caleb started to get a little bit down in the mouth towards the end of the game because his brother, of course, was the entertainer and had the highest paycheck of, of everyone else and, and was getting all these mad spins, and, and he really wasn't doing so well. And they were forcing it. was kind of the end of the game. You had to tally it up. So, you know, they're like, no, nope, you need to sell your house because we need to see how much it's worth, and you need to add all this stuff up. And he's kind of like, no, I don't really want to sell my house. I don't, I don't even want to look at the tally. And so I had to kind of call him over to me and hold him and say, hey, son, it looks like you're feeling kind of a little bit sad, huh? It's like, yeah. Why is that? Is it because you're not doing as well as the others? Yeah. And I had to say, you know what? There's something that this game is missing out on, isn't it? This game seems to imply that when you get to the end of your life, You add up all your earthly treasures. You count up the piles of money, and the person with the biggest pile of money wins. Is that really how life is? Does God really count up all the money, tally up your bank account and your house and your car and all these things? Is that how God determines your value to see if you're a winner or not? No. Okay. That really, yeah. And so, so that was a great conversation with my son, and it was so great that I just had... Yeah, and guess what we're learning about in, in gift here? We're, that's, we're going to be learning something totally different here through his word. Um, as we move on and we're thinking about, so what, what kind of a life do we really want to build? What kind of life results in one of satisfaction, of a sense of at the end of the game when you look, at, you look back at everything that you've done, that you go, I'm happy with how I played this game. I'm really satisfied with this. We can have so many good intentions. And as Paul goes on, he says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As Paul goes on, he he tries to say, I know you've got good intentions, but I want to make sure that your deeds are matching your intentions. And at the end of all that, because God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what does that mean, a cheerful giver? I've heard it preached before that where the the word for cheerful, it comes from the Greek word hilaros. That's where we get the word hilarious. So I've heard it explained that God loves a hilarious giver. And I think there's some truth in that. I think there's definitely some truth in that, that God loves someone who is such a, um, has such a, a zeal and a zest for, for sharing with others that it's, it's just absolutely hilarious. Um, but actually, as I kind of looked it up in Strong's Concordance um, and online through Strong's Concordance, I found that hilarious means joyful or joyous, cheerful, not grudging. They did a bit of a word study, and they said it means disposed because satisfied. Someone who is cheerfully ready to act because already approving, won over, already inclined. When you think about what that looks like, that means someone who, um, say that your son comes up to you and says, Mom, will will you do something for me? And you go, I thought you'd never ask. Because it's something that you already wanted to give them. You're just already like, yes, I thought you'd never ask. Now, why does God love this kind of a cheerful giver? Someone who's just waiting to overflow into giving. Well, I think if you think about the contrast, it's pretty easy to see. There is nothing worse than a stingy giver 
or a stingy gift. And that has nothing to do with the size of the gift. It has nothing to do with how expensive it is, but it has everything to do with the heart of the giver. If you think to Mother's Day or Valentine's Day or even on your birthday, and you think about what kind of a gift you'd like to have, do you want just a plain, sterile card that someone got for you because it's that day on the calendar, and if I don't do it, you're going to be mad at me? No. On the other hand, um, or even if it was something really extravagant, but again, it was done out of, well, I need to do this, so here you go. But that grubby little bouquet of dandelions pressed into your palm, or that homemade card that everything's misspelled. But it's given from the heart just because I love you. Those are the things that we treasure, right? Those are the things that touch us the most. That is um, a giver that's, given from the, that's giving from the heart, giving out of love. Paul goes on to give us a quote from Psalm 112. And so I thought I'd read that. Not just the verses that he had, but I love this psalm. Because the title of it is, The Righteous Will Never Be Moved. And that doesn't seem to have anything to do with giving. Psalm 112 reads, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. That stopped me. Because I've heard that phrase, his righteousness endures forever. And it isn't about a guy, a human. It's usually about God, isn't it? So that was something that just kind of, whoa, oh, we're not talking about God's righteousness right here. We're talking about the righteous person. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. As we look at Psalm 112, there are these common themes. One of the main ones, and our study brought it up, is the fact that this man is not afraid, or this woman we could apply to, I'm pretty sure. Um, They're not afraid. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. He doesn't depend on money to be his security, and this frees him up to be generous. Secondly, his goodness, his righteousness. Sorry, It's physically manifested or expressed in health, prosperity, abundance, fruitfulness. Now, we know that that is not always a perfect correlation in life. See Job. But this is an allegorical figure. This is someone who epitomizes the way things are supposed to be. And so that's why in the Old Testament, there are both good guys and bad guys in real life who prosper. But in the wisdom literature, in Psalms and Proverbs, we see... It's depicted as an aberration or something wrong when a godless person prospers. Here we see that it's good, it's celebrated when someone who is wise and righteous and godly thrives. So that's why he's, he's showing that. Um, not to say that poor people cannot be generous as well. Obviously, that's not true. But um, it's right and good for 
um, the righteous to be able to prosper, as I guess what this is saying. And the other thing is that this guy is faithful, he's steadfast, he's constant. His righteousness endures forever. Now, do you notice something in all of this? He reflects his God. That was something else about the enduring forever. That was something that usually in the Psalms you hear about God. Um, And all of these things are a picture of the God that he serves. I think this shows that when you're generous, two things happen. And the first is that you resemble God. The truth is, this is hard for some of us to hear, many of us to hear. God doesn't actually want or need your money because it was his before it was yours and he can take it back if he wants to. The truth is what God really desires is a partner and he's willing to back that up. Paul goes on to say about how he is able to enable our giving. When I was growing up, Our church had an offertory that we sang pretty much every week. So it's kind of become ingrained in my memory. It's, we give thee but thine own, whatever the gift might be. All that we have is thine alone, a trust, O Lord, from thee. So when God is giving blessings into our life, he's giving it to us, and he's whispering to us, take a risk. Do you see who I am? Do you see the bountiful, generous God that I am? And and he shines the sun on the rich and the wicked alike, right? He is generous to everyone. He offers salvation to everyone. And his mercies are new every day. He's the kind of God who his righteousness endures forever. He is the God of goodness. He is the God who's not afraid because he doesn't trust in his own creation you know, to have to give him security. He is, he's powerful, he's good, he's abundant. And that's the God that we serve. And so when he overflows in generosity towards us, he's inviting us into a partnership to be able to do those things with him. And what an adventure that is. What, what an adventure to be able to take a risk with God and to be able to say, all right, God, let's, let's go there. Let's go there and let's see how you're then going to continue to pour into my life and, and we'll work this out together. A second thing happens is that you become a part of something much bigger. And I think Paul does a great job of pointing that out, of saying, when you give, you are part of a community of faith. That giving, which is a discipline, which is um, strengthens your relationship with God, it's not just about you and him, but it also plugs you into this greater community that ends up so that you are supplying the needs of, of these other people, and then they are giving back to you, and they are praising God, and they are praying for you, and there's just this wonderful um, mix of mutual love and giving and receiving and praising God and all of it, helping each other. Um, and it's, it is an indescribable gift, isn't it, to be a part of that? So as I kind of wrap this up and think about how can we apply this to our life, um, one of the things that came up to me is, into my mind is the thought that um, the best time to sow are in times of transition and season change, aren't they? I know that because um, 
I'm sort of in a, as my kids are moving into school age, I'm having to sort of reassess my life and go, okay, Lord, what, what, what is my life looking like right now? Where, where are you calling me to, to sow into? What are the things that you want me to invest into? How do you want my life to look right now? And sunset, we are in a time of tremendous change, aren't we? Um, and we have an opportunity to take a look at ourselves and go, what do we want to sow into? Do we want to sow into having the nicest facilities in Portland? Do we want to sow into having the, um, the most charismatic, you know, great leader who's able to draw in crowds? Are we wanting to sow into our community, into social justice? Are we wanting to sow into discipleship? Are we wanting to sow into the next generation? What are the things that, that we want to sow into, but what is also the heart of God as we pray and we seek his will and say, what do you want to sow into, God? How can we partner with you? Paul says, and this is a verse that really stuck with me this week, everyone who should give what he has determined in his heart to give. And what have we determined? You need to take the time to think that out, to be intentional about it, or otherwise, um, you know, what happens when you don't do anything? Nothing, really. So I kind of thought through some questions. I thought, number one, we can ask ourselves, where are you currently sowing? Do a little assessment of your life um, and say, where's my time going? Where are my finances going? Um, where, what relationships am I pouring into? What is my life about right now? And where do I want to sow? What are the things that are moving my heart? Um, and are they the same? But also, like I said in the very beginning, not just looking, not just looking at what we give, because in the verse, the, in the passage that um, the passage also or the study also brought up, I think it was in Luke about being ready and Christ saying that you need to be ready. You know, He wasn't saying, "I'm going to be coming back and I'm going to ask for an accounting of how many Sunday school classes did you teach." <laughs> And how many mission trips did you go on? And how much money did you give to the poor? And how much did you donate to Helping Hands? And how many programs did your church have? He's not accounting in that way. He's saying, are you ready? Are you the kind of person who is awake, listening? The person so that when the bridegroom comes back, he can open the door immediately. And I think that um, in our giving, we need to have an attitude where we're ready so that when God comes to us and opens our eyes to a need, that we have enough margin that we can say yes to that. That we don't have to say, I'm sorry, God, but I already have all these programs lined up and these volunteer hours and um, my schedule's booked. I think we need to be able to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? have our our time, our money, all of that managed in such a way that we also build in time um, for for God to be able to surprise us or to ask us um, to go in new directions, that we are able to be obedient. So how is your attitude? Are you a ready, cheerful giver? There's one other um, kind of analogy that I wanted to give. Oh, yeah, okay, before I go there. Many of you, I know, are already huge givers. 
And you already give lots of money and lots of time to very, very worthy causes. And I don't want to detract from that at all. Some of you are very tired because of how much you're giving. Or you've spent a lifetime doing so. So it's easy to say, um, I've given enough. And as I was thinking about this, I met a woman this fall. And... um, for the first time, and as I, I was in conversation with her, trying to kind of see if there was anything that we had in common, you know, things to talk about, whatever, you know, chit-chat, it, it seemed like she was a very religious person. And so I thought, oh, I'll go and ask her about her church, you know, just where did she go to church, what she involved in, you know, things like that. And, um, and it, it was surprising because the conversation actually came to a very abrupt kind of halt around that time, <laughs> um, surprisingly. And what happened was, First of all, she said, well, no, I don't, I don't really go to church much anymore. And part of it was the fact that she's getting older. It's harder to get to church. Her husband is hard of hearing, so whenever she goes, he can't hear. And, you know, and all of those kind of things. But then on top of that, then I thought, well, I mean, she used to sing in the choir for years and years and years. And I thought, oh, well, I, I used to sing in the choir, and I know what a joy that is. And so I kind of wanted to, I really wanted to pull out, you know, where are the areas where, where she finds joy? And I wanted to ask her about that. And instead of being able to say, yeah, yeah, let me, let me talk about that. Instead, she kind of shut down and she said, I did that. For years and years and years, I was on all the committees, I served at all the funerals, I did bake sales, I did, I, I did everything, and now I'm done. I'm done, I'm tired, it's too much. I'm, I, that, and the conversation kind of was like, okay, time to talk about something new. <laughs> but my heart absolutely broke. And I'm not one who's talking to her, expecting her to say, you're not serving at your church. Shame on you. That, that was not my heart at all. My heart broke because I thought, here is someone who has become so distracted and consumed with the process of giving that she lost the heart of a giver. And more than that, I think she never discovered the adventure and satisfaction of partnering with God. There's no risk. There's no, there's no joy in the harvest. She didn't, she felt as though she needed to give. She felt as though to be able to be accepted and approved of, she needed to produce all of these things. And really, God was there the whole time saying, I just want to spend time with you. I just want to do the things that I love to do with you. And she didn't see that. She didn't get that kind of joy. And it broke my heart. There's one other analogy then this week. I spent a couple of days as the sun came out in pruning. I have a couple of mature apple trees and a pear tree in the backyard, and it's maybe getting it to be a little bit late in pruning, but we've had a late spring. So I was out there on a ladder pruning these monstrous sucker growth on my apple trees. And I started to notice that, okay, how do I tackle this? Because it's just really overwhelming to see all this tangle of blah everywhere. And so the first priority was, okay, there's crossing branches. That can't happen. These branches can't be rubbing against each other. So, okay, snip those out. The crossing branches in our life, I think, are when we have conflicting goals and schedules, things that all of a sudden they're rubbing against each other, and you can't do them both. 
Because we live in a culture that says you can do everything, right? Especially to women. We say you can be a mom, you can be working at a Fortune 500 company, you can volunteer, you can do, you can do everything. And the fact is we are finite human beings and we can't. Um, so we need to do some pruning sometimes in our life. And so when we have these crossing branches, sometimes we have to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> I have to make a conscious choice about which one I'm going to choose. The next thing I was looking at was there are these, I could, I could tell, okay, well, I can tell there's a difference between which ones are suckers and which ones are fruiting branches because some of them, because there's a difference in quality. There's a difference in color about them. The fruiting branches actually have buds growing on them. The suckers just go straight up and are just like nothing on it. And I thought, as I was cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting, and my hands getting tired, all of a sudden I'm realizing, you know what these suckers are? They're good intentions. <laughs> I can have a billion good intentions in my life, and, I can, and all of them can be great, right? Um, they're, they're, they're really wonderful goals and ideas. And I say, you know what? I want to run a 5K. Actually, I want to get in shape <laughs> so that I can run it all before I do the 5K, you know, and I want to eat healthy, and I want, you know, gosh, I haven't barely been practicing spelling words with my son, so we need to work on that, and we need to work on getting organized, and, um, and all, you know, all of these things, and I want to volunteer at church, and I want to be in a serve group, and I want to have more time with my husband, and all of these things, they're good things, but they're all just this forest of good intentions, And so can you look at maybe, I started to think about uh, what are the good intentions that are sort of pie in the sky? Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) But it's probably not going to happen because honestly, um, I'd like to do it if I had infinite energy, infinite resources. But what's a deep desire? There's a difference between those because the things that are deep desires, the things that God has planted in our heart, we make time for them. We make time for those things because we want them. And yes, I, I want to run a 5K, but, but I don't want it the same way that I want a relationship with my husband that we're always on the same page, you know, or a relationship with God that I, I, I don't feel far from him. Those are the things that I go, no, those have, those have buds on them. I need to save those. And I need to get rid of some of the suckers. And I need to not feel sorry about that, all this, you know, tangled bunch of suckers on the ground because they got to go. The third thing was, once I had these fruiting branches, over the last year, some of these fruiting branches that did produce fruit last year now have an additional 12 to 18 inches of growth on them. And they all have buds every two inches. And I started to think... What would happen if every single one of those buds produced a flower and got fertilized and started to grow an apple? (laughs) Number one, what quality of fruit would it be if this branch has 40 apples growing off of it? And number two, would the branch be able to support it? I think sometimes we need to take a look at our life in the same way and say, okay, so say just hypothetically I had infinite resources and all of these things God blessed and they all succeeded, would my life be able to support all of those things? Or would I end up having a nervous breakdown? <laughs> what quality of fruit would it produce? Say I'm spending that time with my kids, but I'm also trying to juggle something on my phone. What quality of interaction am I having with my children? 
You sometimes need to, even though this is a fruiting branch, and they can all produce apples, that's great all and well, but what is the quality of fruit that I'm interested in having? Do I want tiny little mealy apples, or do I want big luscious ones? you got to pick. You have to think about what are the things you want. And it's not always then about trimming out what things don't I want, that's important too, but what are the things that I really want to say yes to and invest in those. Um, one last little kind of thing here, and this is, I know, kind of changing metaphors a little bit. I also was planting peas uh, about a couple weeks ago. I realized that when you plant things, you take into account the size of the mature plant and you space the seeds accordingly. See, when you look at these things, I know you go, I haven't gotten anywhere near to doing whatever. I haven't gotten any near to this. But you have to see with the eyes of faith for what it will be. So if you start investing in someone's life, if you say, you know what? God has pointed out this person in my life, and I need to start, I'm going to start taking them out for coffee. And I'm going to start getting to know them. And I'm going to start telling them about Jesus. You need to also see with the eyes of faith and go, so what if that relationship blooms and grows? Because what happens if at some point in time they start responding and then you go, whoa, 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 (laughs) I didn't realize you had so much baggage and my life is already 99% full. I don't really have time to do more than just coffee once a month or whatever. You kind of need to, you need to take into account the size of that mature plant and again, space it accordingly. So you need to make sure, or otherwise you're going to have to do some thinning, just, you know, honestly, and that might be a little painful. Is there room for God to come into your giving? Are you so disciplined, so full, that if Jesus himself comes and asks you to invest somewhere, you can do it cheerfully? So I ask myself, when there's life changes for a loved one, can I be there for them? Um, When I meet someone new, am I willing to talk to them? Is my day so full that, that God can't, I can't say, God, give me your eyes to see where you want me to put into, because I already have my list of where I'm sowing into. But I tell you what, when you partner with God, when you give him, when, when, you, when it becomes a mix of, of the fact that you know that you reflect your God, and all the good things that, you, that your heart is being drawn into, they're put there by God. And God doesn't want you to just be a robot and, you know, give wherever he tells you to. He wants you to take a little initiative too. That's his spirit in you working, and you can trust that. But also partnering with him so that he can come in and you can have a dialogue about what you're doing and how you're giving. Um, that way, you can, it, can, it can be fluid. And it's deeply, deeply satisfying. And he will... Um, as Paul says, I just want to wanna encourage you. Because sometimes that giving that takes discipline, sometimes you have to dig deep and sometimes you have to make sacrifices. And, and that's, all part of, that's all part of the process. But um, God is so faithful. And he's the one who supplies seed to the sower. He's the one who provides bread for food. He's the one who, um, this morning, <laughs> I had... Um, had my lesson pretty much all figured out, had the lunches made for my kids, got them off to school, got myself ready, had to stop in at my grandma's uh, place and and help her out. And I had about a 15-minute time allotted for her. And then it was, okay, I need to be on the road to make sure that I get here on time and and all of that. You know what? I walked into it, and she was having a bad morning. And um, 
And I could tell because she was saying, I think everyone hates me. <laughs> and I, no, 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 Grandma, I love you. That's why I'm here, you know. And, um, oh, no, I think, I think someone hates me because it's, it's cold in here. And so someone must be turning it off. And I know, maybe I should take down all these pictures that I've painted because then someone, and it's not making sense. And I'm going, oh, this is going to take a little more than five minutes. And I'm taking the, oh, the dog has to go to the bathroom, and he's pooping on the floor out of the way. And I go, oh, God, it's past my time when I needed to be on the road. But I, you, I'm doing this for you. I'm taking the extra five minutes, Jesus, for you to sit with her and love her and tell her, I love you. I'm here with you. You know what? When can I come back later this afternoon? Let's have a talk about that, Grandma. Would that help? You know, um, And not to be so concerned about the clock, because in my mind I'm saying, God, you enable me to give. You enable that. And I'm going to count on you to say, not (laughs) in a kind of joking way, you owe me. (laughs) But but to say, I know, God, you're going to take care of traffic on the way. You're going to make sure that that my nervousness when I'm driving, that you're going to have that under control. You're going to put the right songs on the radio. You're going to give me the right frame of mind that I can do that because I'm doing right now. I know I'm doing what you're calling me to do. And so I know that you're going to enable me to be able to do what I need to do. God does that for us. And even when it's kind of hard to trust him, it's that risk. It's that risk of putting the seed in the ground and covering up and saying, okay, God, let's watch you work. Let's see what you have to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the seed of your word. I pray that we would be good soil. I pray, God, that um, in the conversations later on today, in the thoughts of the quiet times in our car, or in the privacy of our own kitchen, drinking coffee, that we would invite you into those times, God, that you would speak to us, that you would open up our eyes, not in any way to, uh, to shame or condemn or to you know, be critical, but God, to just um, help us to, to see our lives as they are. To see you, God, to see who you are. And God, as you whisper into our lives, come along with me on an adventure. I pray that our spirits would not just whisper, I want to. I really want to. But that those good intentions, Lord, that you would grow them, that you would raise them up into being mighty acts of righteousness that endure forever. You promise that you enable that in our lives, God, and we praise you for that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.